Don't be afraid to make people uncomfortable. Don't hide parts of yourself. Don't be afraid to speak up and say what you really want, even if you're not 100% sure of what that looks like. Don't make yourself small and don't worry about how it's going to make other people uncomfortable because it is going to make other people uncomfortable. When people don't understand something, when they encounter something different, they are uncomfortable. It's only through that discomfort that change happens. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a lawyer, fashion model, TV host, content creator, and human rights advocate based in Los Angeles, California. She is regularly featured on television news segments nationwide and is also one of five moms featured in the Honest Company special documentary series, I Never Expected. Her social media following and blog grew out of mentoring young women in the fashion, legal, and education industries. She's also an advocate for positivity, celebrating natural beauty, inherent talents, and transparent motherhood. Most recently, she launched a new organization, Cause Together, which provides free marketing resources to nonprofits. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Jessica Harris. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited that you're here, and I am so excited to get into your story. Before we do, I like to ask every guest for a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of slice of life. What is your favorite moment about today so far? Oh, that's so easy for me. My son is my favorite moment out of every day, even the bad moments. I love it. He is my joy. Is there anything specific that he did this morning? Well, you know, we rode bikes this morning. He has a little Spider-Man bike, and he loves Spidey and Friends. He calls me Ghost Spider Mommy because she's part of the team. I bought a brand new bike that actually looks its the same colors as Ghost Spider. So we ride our Team Spidey bikes together in the morning, and that's that's always a beautiful way to start the day. <laughs> My son is also a big Spidey and Friends fan, and he has a Spider-Man bike that we recently also bought. I do not have a matching bike, but that is goals right there. <laughs> I am inspired now to get a matching bike. <laughs> All right. Speaking of superheroes, let's get into your lawyer origin story. Did you always want to be a lawyer? I think in some capacity, I always knew that I wanted to be involved in the legal field because even when I was younger, I had a really strong sense of justice. I remember telling someone the other day that a lot of other kids, you know, when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they will say something like a fireman, a police officer, a movie star, a singer, and I wanted to be Martin Luther King Jr. Why? Oh, good question. Well, I was always a toss between Martin Luther King Jr. and then Malcolm X as I got older. (laughs) Because racial justice and empathy has always been a big theme of my life and in my family, and I'm an empath. So I started volunteering and just wanting to do things for other people in my community from the time I was a really small child. And In college, I got to blossom and really explore and be exposed to all kinds of different nonprofits and volunteer groups. And USC encourages that. It's a big part of the culture at USC. So I found my place in volunteering and community work and human rights activism. So I don't necessarily know that law was the goal. By the time I got to Washington, D.C., I was working for the State Department. I was headed to the Foreign Service. Really? The Foreign Service, or it was going to be the Peace Corps. It was going to be something like that. And 
everyone in Washington, D.C. is a lawyer. So I was strongly encouraged <laughs> to go to law school because, you know, everyone told me you will be able to do the work that you want to do and be a more effective advocate. You'll be able to get more done. You will be able to help people in a greater capacity. So that was really appealing to me. And then I chose Columbia Law School because they have like the best human rights clinic in the world. And even their LLM program is centered on human rights and social justice. And I think a lot of people come from all over the world for that part of the school. So that was how I ended up in law school. <laughs> it's, it's a great story. The first thing that you said is that the concept of racial justice has been something that's been inside of you and your family for a really long time. Can you give me some examples of what that looked like in your family? On a very simple, basic level, for me, it just looked like empathy and compassion because I didn't experience a lot of that when I was a kid. My dad is black and very dark. And my mom is white and very light. And I am smack in the middle. The people my age who are mixed race, you know, there weren't many of us when I was growing up. And people did not understand that. And people typically, when they don't understand things that are different, they are afraid of it. And they can be very cruel. So we had a lot of discussions in my house about race and what it meant to be human and compassionate and kind and treating people the way that we want to be treated and being an example for the community and not making ourselves small and just disappearing because we were afraid, but more building alliances and developing relationships as the most effective way to grow people and grow together and grow with your community. I think that was a really core value that my parents raised me with. So it wasn't just like smile in their faces. It was like, you know what? We're going to be friend these people and we're going to get to know them and we're going to be rock stars in this community and show them who we are inside as a way to change these really just kind of ignorant perceptions about us. What an incredible thing to have that dialogue within your home and that support system. Where do you think your parents got that from? That's a good question. My dad is a really special person. He grew up in Harlem in the projects and he was in the Vietnam War. So I think he's just seen a lot of life. Yeah. Um, and when you go through tremendously difficult experiences, like the ones that my dad went through, I think you have a choice. You can become bitter and hardened and jaded and angry, or you can find the lesson in it and find a way to overcome and transcend that. And then once you do transcend those hardships, I think it's natural for you to want to help other people overcome hardships. It's an incredible way of looking at life because he and now I see you through all your work are looking to really pass on that information and that knowledge to others and empower others to do the same. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. My parents are pretty special. I'm really grateful for them. My dad actually just passed away on the 4th of July. So sorry. Thank you. What was his name? Melvin Harris. Melvin Harris. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. His passing has inspired me to just refocus on what I am most passionate about, what I value, how he raised me and how he lived. He was such a shining example of so many things that I want to be. And I am so much of him. And my dad taught me about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. In Black families, typically, we have to give our kids our own education because the education system has really failed to give an accurate, full and fair representation of what the racial history is in this country. Mm -hmm. So... I think that was a big part of it, too. 
And just remind me, where did you grow up? I grew up in Lancaster, California. It is a desert suburb just north of Los Angeles. Even though geographically, its proximity to LA is very close, culturally, it couldn't be more different. And I think it's probably different now. I mean, I haven't lived there in, gosh, over 20 years. And even by the time I was in high school, there were a lot of diverse families moving into the area. You know, it may be a totally different experience now. I have no idea. But when I was growing up, it was like 100% white. (laughs) And the industry out there was much more blue collar, very, very religious and kind of insular. I think most people that lived there, grew up there and had been there for generations. So it's interesting because it had a very small town feel, even though it was a very large city, technically. One of the other things that you mentioned in your story was that you were an empath. Explain what an empath is and like, how did you discover that's what you are? There's probably a million different definitions of what an empath is, whether you're speaking spiritually or from, you know, like a psychological perspective. For me, being an empath simply means I feel what other people feel. I feel it deeply. And most importantly, it's not something I have to try to do. I just put myself in other people's shoes. So one of the things that I try to teach when I mentor and when I talk about the human rights causes that I care about is you shouldn't have to experience what somebody else has experienced in order to care. That's empathy is me being able to see you and see your struggle and say, I care. I may not know exactly what you've been through. I may not know what it feels like, but you as a human being matter to me and your experience matters to me. It's really beautiful. Do you think that being an empath played a really big part in wanting to go into human rights activism? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, the expression bleeding heart absolutely applies to me. <laughs> Always been, you know, quote unquote, too sensitive, which now I'm realizing is a superpower. Mm-hmm. But, you know, growing up in the 90s, like being too sensitive was not a positive thing. I do remember. I was always called too sensitive as well. Yeah. So it's tough when you feel things. That was just the core of who I was. And I always wanted to like fight for justice and protect people who didn't have the resources to be protected. And lawyers, to me, the way that they're glamorized on television, it always seems like they are the ones who ultimately can really get things done. So you went to D.C. You had a very specific path in mind. You were going to be in some sort of international service. And then you were strongly recommended to go into law. What did that mean? Who was strongly recommending you to do that? Coworkers, friends, cab drivers, (laughs) I mean, just literally everyone. I forget what the number is, but there's some insane number of attorneys per capita in the city of Washington, D.C. It's just Mm -hmm. a high concentration of attorneys. Yes. So almost everybody that you meet is an attorney. And it's so funny because there's this very interesting paradox where all of these attorneys are encouraging you to become a lawyer and, and touting their profession. And at the same time, they're discouraging you like, oh, but, you know, you should find something else to do. Like in the same breath, they'll tell you like, oh, law school is great and you can do so much with your degree, but don't go to law school. And why do you think that is? I think a lot of lawyers are miserable. They don't like the profession. I think it's oversaturated. I don't think that most people should become lawyers. I think a lot of people choose the legal path because it seems stable and the money is great. But I had the privilege of working for a litigator. His name's Paul Murphy, and he's one of the best litigators in the country hands down. It was a very, very small firm. There were only like five of us. And Paul was one of my mentors. We're still 
personal friends. He was one of those people who just born to be a lawyer. He loves it. He's great at it. And he's just a superstar. So when you work in close proximity to somebody like that, you really see, oh my gosh, this is what it looks like to wake up every day and feel so fulfilled and excited by what you do. It's not about the money. It's not about the prestige. And I told him, I said, watching you makes me realize like this wasn't the right profession for me. Oh, interesting. So when you worked with him, this was post-law school. Yeah. Well, I went to a Big Ten law firm right after law school, a big corporate law firm. That's another story, how I ended up there. Tell me that. Well, okay. So, you know, I think a lot of people go to law school feeling the way I feel, like I'm going to make a difference in the world. There's two camps of people, the lawyers who want to make money and they know their trajectory and the people who want to make a difference and help people. I'm in the second category. And it's so interesting. I love telling the story when we were at orientation, our classes are only like maybe 150, 200 people max. And they asked the audience to raise their hand how many people were intending to go into nonprofit public service work. There was a significant number of us. I want to say like maybe 20 to 30. And we all knew each other and we were all friends because we were doing the human rights clinics together. We were doing pro bono work together. We were taking similar classes. And by the time we graduated, I feel like only a small handful ended up doing something in the nonprofit sector or working for an NGO. I mean, like maybe three or four. Wow. Why do you think that is? I can only speak for myself. It wasn't just about student loans, which is a significant part of it, especially as somebody who my family is not wealthy. I don't have a large trust. I actually had to take out $200,000 in student loans to go to law school. But when all of the best law firms in the world come to recruit from Columbia, obviously it's the second best law school in the world. So they have a great pitch. They make a good sale. And for me, they knew how to pitch me. And the pitch was, we know you're basically a bleeding heart <laughs> human rights activist. And we think that's great. But if you come to our firm, we will train you to be an excellent lawyer and you can be a better advocate. You can do the kind of work that you want to do and you'll be better at it. You'll have better training. You'll have a better resume. Meanwhile, you're paying off your student loans and our firm loves human rights pro bono work. You can do all the pro bono work you want as long as you meet your billables, 2,000 hours a year. So I bought it. It sounded like a great deal. But once you get there, you realize, at least back then, the culture in a lot of these big law firms is pretty horrendous. You're hazed. It's not sustainable. Their entire business model is built on pushing people out early. They don't want you to make partner. They don't want you to stay. It's like what one person out of every incoming class might make partner someday. So, you know, pro bono is something that you can do if you don't want to sleep because it's not possible. I was already sleeping under my desk. Why is it that every lawyer that has worked at a top law firm has a sleeping under desk story? Because that's the business model. Grind, grind, grind until you burn out and then you have to leave. So unfortunate. And it's crazy. Like in the same year, one of my best friends who could have made partner at a similarly big law firm, she basically committed herself to a psych ward because she wanted to kill herself. My other friend had a massive heart attack at 32. Wow. And he worked for a top law firm in New York City. And I was seeing this kind of pattern. I just said, there's no way. And it's not even taking me to where I want to go. How long were you at the firm before you started to make the change? Well, I was at the firm for a total of two years. 
And after the first year, I realized it wasn't sustainable and I was going to be gone pretty soon. So is this when you moved to Paul Murphy's firm? Yeah. I left the big firm and I I want to say maybe like a year later, I went to Paul Murphy's firm because back then I thought, oh, okay, it's not the profession. It's just the workplace, obviously. And I loved the people that I worked with at Paul Murphy's firm. And it was such a great culture. So I thought, okay, this is it. You know, this is where I will thrive and succeed. But like I said, it was realizing that litigation is not for me, which I still practice ironically, (laughs) but litigation is not for me and I don't love it. So I have to find a way to now really use these skills that I have, use this tremendous education that I have and do something different with it. How long were you at Paul Murphy's firm for? I want to say another two years, maybe. Then I just took a leap of faith and said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll find another way. So I started contracting, which means, you know, you're a solo practitioner and work on cases for random firms when it works for you. I took on a lot less work and I went back to modeling full time. So when did the modeling start? I started modeling when I was 13. It was always something really fun and exciting that I loved, especially, you know, in the 90s, like the era of the supermodel. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And it was good money back then. I didn't even work that much as a model. I, you know, like I wasn't great. I wasn't crushing it, but the jobs that I did get paid well. So it helped pay for school, for travel, for fun activities that I wanted to do. And actually when I left the big law firm, I went back to modeling full-time. So that was still brewing in the background and things in the modeling industry were changing. People who look like me still weren't really represented, but they were getting there. It was going in that direction a lot faster than most of the other industries in this country. So that was exciting to be a part of, and it felt good, and I was getting good work. It's funny when you talk about modeling in the 90s, it really was this time of the supermodel. And also, I don't know that much about modeling, but I do remember growing up and there was like Barbizon. Barbizon. (laughs) (laughs) All these ancillary companies that were trying to make money off of how huge and attractive and glittery the modeling industry was. Like there were, I remember there were classes that people would spend all this money for to teach you how to walk on a runway. Yes. I'm like, it's a runway. I don't need to pay you to show me how to walk. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just silly. Oh, and America's Next Top Model, you know, like that was to do. So, wow, it's bringing me back to all of these things. And then people in the mall, right, that would be like, oh, hi, do you want to be a model? I don't know if you remember. Yes. Oh, absolutely. All right. Sorry. I didn't want to get distracted there, but you like you, you you brought like some nostalgia back for me. And I was like, oh, yeah. OK, so you leave the big law firm. You start modeling. You also started practicing at the smaller firm, stay there for two years as you were modeling in the background as well, and then decided to go fully back to the modeling world. What did that journey look like for you? Scary because <laughs> the work is not consistent. I knew that I hit a wave. And when you're on that wave, you have to ride it. And then something interesting happened. So when did Instagram start? Was it 2012 or 11? Seems about right. So at the same time that my modeling career is taking off, we have not just Facebook, like Facebook was its own thing, but Instagram really changed the name of the game for social media. And it actually became a way for me to get better work and better visibility and build a completely different type of business. At the same time, it also made traditional models like me obsolete. So I saw the writing on the wall really early on because I would go to castings and auditions and they started asking me for my Instagram page. They wanted to see my following. 
they wanted to see who else I was working with on Instagram. And they, at that time, were more interested in hiring people who weren't models. But I like I could see the trend. I could already see where things were going. And brands were starting to send me stuff and ask me to post. And I just thought, well, if they can get somebody to post for free and do all the work, basically create the entire marketing campaign for them, why would they hire a model? Eventually, they're not going to. And that's really what has happened. The social media industry is a billion dollar industry. All of the marketing budgets for every company now goes into influencer campaigns. And traditional modeling work has all but disappeared. When I do get castings, I don't even go a lot of the time because the rates are terrible and it's not good work. Unless you are a strictly runway model, that's a very specific thing. You know, like you're six foot, very, very skinny, have a very specific look. Those girls at least used to work like, gosh, they would do like 86 shows in a year all over the world. Wow. I knew some of those women. That was a hard life. I don't know if it's still that way. But other than that, like nobody's making a living off of modeling anymore. So what did you do with that information? I had built a pretty significant following from my modeling portfolio, which is where like my Instagram page was my modeling portfolio because that's how I would get modeling work. But then I realized, oh, these companies are sending me things. Maybe I can ask them to pay me to put the campaign together. And it wasn't much at first, but then they said, yes, they would pay me like a couple hundred bucks here and there to take the picture and post it because I had a team, because I wasn't just posting photos that were on an iPhone. I was working with some of the best photographers in the world and makeup artists and stylists. And I was getting gowns from London. Like I was putting together like killer content. Right. And then I became a mom and I just pivoted. I said, okay, well, I'm going to step out of the modeling world for a while. Maybe I'll get some work as a pregnant model, but what can I do with this? And I stepped into the wild west. I stepped into the very interesting and exciting world of mom blogging. And it's been an awesome journey. It's such a fun, interesting, supportive, awesome community. And these moms do well. They crush it. They make bank because... Really, the money in social media, at least in the past, has been in the mom marketing, Hmm. just like it always was, right? Like traditional television advertising. My other major in college was communications and advertising. So I know a lot about this, but marketing traditionally always targets moms because moms were in the home. Moms had the buying power and moms bought everything. You're not limited to just fashion. Oh, it's cleaning products, children's products, toys, food toiletries, beauty care products, anything and everything you could think of, a mom can market. So that's where the industry evolved in that sense. It's For me, it's been fascinating to watch and to be a part of. I'm sure. I also see that you're doing a lot of other work that still leverages your legal degree and your desire to still be in the world of justice. So once I realized that I had a platform and people were paying attention and listening, I decided, well, I don't just have to talk about being a mom. I don't just have to talk about fashion. I can talk about things that I actually care about. And I did. I started posting about the volunteer work that I would do, or if there was something globally, like a crisis going on that I could help draw attention to, I did that. And that happened quite a few years ago. But then in 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, it completely shifted social media because now social media is actually a place where everybody can be an advocate and it brings a lot of attention to causes that people want to know about and it can actually change the narrative it can provide information it can be educational it can be a place of support and that was something i really responded to it was like okay 
here we go. This is what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of communities and help build communities that help inform people, help people feel like they're actionable things they can do in their own lives, help build communities, make a difference, educate. A lot of people responded when I started doing that. And they let me know, like, we're really interested in this too. And then I still, like, I, I went back to practicing law. I'm full-time now. <laughs> it's great. I work for an outstanding law firm based out of Nebraska, and I work remotely, and I love it. So it's always evolving. All the different things I do, it's constantly evolving. And sometimes they mesh and come together, and sometimes they don't. I think it's really interesting because when we started this interview, one of the things that you said was that the school systems have really failed in trying to provide the correct account of the history of race in this country. And I love how it comes full circle. We're in this position to now educate and correct that. And throughout all of this work in social media, you were still able to dip your hands into all of these different causes. Thank you. Can you just give some examples of some of the causes that you've been involved with? So the causes that I talk about on social media are the causes that have always mattered to me. Human trafficking, taking care of our veterans, disabled veterans, homelessness, women's rights, and racial justice. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the future because unfortunately, I think social media is oversaturated. And in the last year, there's been so much misinformation and so many issues with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So we'll see what happens with that. But that's why I wrote a book because I wanted something substantive and like real that you could put in your hands and read that isn't necessarily susceptible to how changeable social media is. Tell me about this book. Can you share a little bit about what it's about? When do you think it'll come out? The book is about my life as a mixed race, Black, biracial woman. It's about my experiences, but it's more than just telling my story. I wanted it to be something actionable and tangible where people feel like they walk away having gained something from the book. So it is educational, but it's also about how these things that we're told in life are disadvantage are actually your superpower, like being too sensitive, like being a mixed race kid, which I was told all the time was, you know, like, I'm a mistake. You have to choose one or the other and how hard that was. But really, it made me a renaissance woman because I learned how to be non-binary racially and exist in a really fluid way that's totally outside of the box from anybody else. I'm sad for the struggles that you've gone through, but I also am inspired by your ability to take that, like you said earlier on, as a lesson and then do good with it. And that translates into my spiritual life. It translates into my community. It translates into my professional choices. And there's so much freedom in that and not just freedom, but so much growth and so much evolution. Like we as human beings don't have to keep putting ourselves in these little boxes and we don't have to keep living by these rules that society tells us we can only be this or you can only do that. There's only one way to do this or look at this or think about this. Well, that's what the book is about. It is telling my story. It is educational about race. It is starting the conversation about being mixed race in America because that's a topic that America had just hasn't even begun to approach. It's very awkward. Nobody really knows what to say about it. And creating a community for mixed race people to feel like they belong. Hey, it's a shared experience. So many of my friends that I've spoken to who are mixed race, they'll tell me, wow, we've had the exact same life. We've had the exact same experiences, but we've all experienced it in isolation. Like we don't have a community. We're all going through the same thing, 
alone. In the past, I think things are going to change and are changing. So the book is about all of that. I love this idea of creating a community around individuals that, like you said, have a common shared experience that don't have a community right now. And also, what a gift to have that duality in your life. What a gift that you get to live in two different worlds and be exposed to all of the beauty that you can get from both worlds. What a thing to celebrate. Thank you. If you could just share really quickly, what kind of law are you practicing now? So right now I practice corporate and civil litigation. And I also practice pro bono human rights work. So for example, the NLG, the National Lawyers Guild, sometimes they'll send out a request for attorneys to just take things on the fly. Like when the protesters in Los Angeles, after the George Floyd murder, were being put on buses and hit with rubber bullets, like they just sent out a call for attorneys to help do intake. So that's right now while I'm raising a small child as a single mom, that's how I stay in touch with my activism. It doesn't have as big of a role in my life, but there's a season for everything. I absolutely love that. There's a season for everything. What does leadership and law mean to you? Integrity, empathy, and ingenuity. Integrity is everything in this profession. We need more of it. Again, like working for someone like Paul, he's so smart. He's so brilliant. He didn't have to play shady games. And I just respect him so much. And judges respect him. Other attorneys respect him. He just does great work. So there's no need for time wasting and wasting clients' money and wasting resources. It's like, just do good work, be a good person, have integrity, and let that speak for itself. If there was one thing you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? That's where ingenuity comes in. The business models of law firms needs to change. There needs to be a total revolution. And one of the law firms I'm working for now is leading that revolution, and I am super excited to be a part of it. Law firms need to start treating people like human beings with families, with children, with lives. We are not commodities that are expendable for a bottom dollar and really taking time to develop attorneys, teach things like integrity and demonstrate it from the top down. There's so much truth in that because like, how do we properly represent clients and really do the good work and be a good person, like you said, if we're not treating the very people that are working for us in that way? And it is going to take a lot of work. It does require a revolution. It's so deeply embedded in the culture of law firms, the fillable hour and sleeping on your desk and the grind, the grind, the grind. But everyone agrees that it's not sustainable, but no one knows how to fix it. And you said that your firm is making strides towards that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, their entire business model is awesome. So the number one firm policy that they take extremely seriously, the number one most important thing is no jerks. <laughs> it's written down. No jerks. Don't be a jerk to your clients, to your coworkers, to your staff. And they have really developed that concept. Not being a jerk isn't just about like not screaming at somebody. It also means having consideration for things like deadlines. If you have information and you know something is due Monday, but you have that information ahead of time, give the paralegals and the associates an immediate heads up and don't give it to them at 5 p.m. on a Friday when they're walking out the door and you know they have kids that they're trying to get home to or you know that there's something going on that weekend. Be conscious about the people you work for and also don't give arbitrary deadlines, just like really crappy things like call somebody at 5.30 a.m. in the morning demanding like an immediate response to something that you don't really need then, but you know they're asleep and they're not on their phone. Just like simple, basic human civilities. You would think that the expression no jerks would be self-evident, but 
it's not. <laughs> so at this firm, because that's such a core value in their culture, every person that they have hired and that they have attracted, like they've vetted them on this kind of basis. Do they fit in with this culture? How important is this to them? That's just like one example. I have a million examples of that. And what's wonderful is I think that women are leading the change. I met this woman who just joined the firm. She was a prosecutor and she set some awesome boundaries when she was the head of her department. She just said, no, like I leave at this time every day to take care of my child, to cook dinner. That's what it is. And I want you to go home at the same time. Like, I don't want to be getting emails from you. I don't want to see that you're online working. Like we all do this together. We all take some mental health time, some quality time and be with our families. And it really changed the entire dynamic in the office. And people realized like, oh, this is a boundary you can set. And it's not totally unattainable. And it actually makes us better at what we do. One of the common threads that I see when I interview women, especially when they're about, let's say, 20 years into their practice, almost all of them have a story in which they're like, I had to leave a firm. I had children. I had to care for someone. And it was in an environment where there was no flexibility as to how I was able to do both. So I had to choose. And many times lawyers had to lose valuable work experience or they got passed up on that partner track. And so I'm just not surprised that it's women leading the charge because women are historically the ones that had to sacrifice. I love that you're working for a firm that really aligns with your values. And I love don't be a jerk. I want like a huge banner. Break no jerks. Just no jerks. <laughs> no jerks. No jerks. <laughs> What's the name of the firm? Hilders Graven. Well, it seems like they really know what they're doing over there. All right. What is something people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? Oh, <laughs> I think people just don't understand what I do. <laughs> people are just generally confused. I just posted a reel on my Instagram page and I pinned it to the top because so many people are just like, wait, I don't understand. Are you a lawyer or are you a model or are you a content creator? I'm like, I'm all three. Well, how does that work? I don't understand. Are they related? Do you do them all at the same time? And I'm like, no. So in this reel, it's just like 12 seconds. It's so funny, but it's just like little clips of all the different things I do. And it's just to show like, it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be cohesive. It's what works for me. It all comes together because it's like this idea of I don't need to be in a box. I don't need to be one thing. I can be numerous things. And it really like aligns with your mantra, which I've seen, which is breaking out of boxes and leaving your labels behind. I can be all the things. I think it's such a wonderful message. Thank you. <laughs> One more question. What is a piece of practical advice for our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law who are looking to follow your lead. Don't be afraid to make people uncomfortable. And I don't mean that like, don't be a jerk and just say, oh, I'm sorry this bothers you or I'm sorry I offended you. I don't really care. That's not what I mean. I mean, don't hide parts of yourself. Don't be afraid to speak up and say what you really want, even if you're not 100% sure what that looks like. Don't make yourself small and don't worry about how it's going to make other people uncomfortable because it is going to make other people uncomfortable. When people don't understand something, when they encounter something different, they are uncomfortable. It's only through that discomfort that change happens. If you get comfortable in your discomfort, then you allow other people to get comfortable with discomfort. And then there's a lot of growth. It's okay to not be comfortable all the time. It's really beautifully put. I said one last question, but I have one more for you. What is your favorite self-care practice? Right now it's sleep because I'm a mom with a young kid. Yeah, just sleep. Like when you hit that breaking point and you just need silence, and you don't have to be a mom to relate to this. You've hit max capacity, your bandwidth, it's fried. 
we live in just such a hyper productive consumer society that just pushes and pushes and pushes until we're depleted. Like you don't have to get to that point. You have every right to take a nap. You have every right to just stop and walk outside and say, you know what? I'm just going to lay on the grass, close my eyes and be quiet for a minute because I just need silence. You have every right to take vacations, take them. That's a luxury. I recognize that people with lower incomes and in different situations don't have that luxury. So I recognize the privilege in saying that. So wherever you can take a break, however you can, like demand them, ask for them, take those breaks. You know, for so long, I felt really guilty whenever I would take a nap. Like I'm mom, I need to be like super in all the ways and work full time and do all the things. And if I told somebody, oh, no, I'm taking a nap, I would be embarrassed a little bit. And then I asked myself, why? (laughs) What are you doing? You need to sleep. Sleep is actually clinically shown to deplete your wellness or increase your wellness, depending on how much you get of it. And so I think it's excellent advice. Like if I were back at the firm now, I would have a beautiful little wooden sign made that was like hand painted that says, taking a nap, do not disturb. And I would stick it on my door and be like, I'm taking a nap. And I would let my secretary know. And I would shut my phones off. I'd be like, do not effing disturb me because this is what I need to do to be able to do my job the way you need it done. Taking a nap. (laughs) I love it. You should make these signs, by the way. I would totally buy this sign. I think a lot of us would buy it. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I want to thank you so much, Jessica, for being on the show. If people wanted to reach out to you or contact you or follow you, what is the best way that they can do that? The best way is through Instagram. I spell my name J-E-S-Y-K-A and then period Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. And my DMs, my inbox gets a little bit flooded sometimes, so I don't always get to them. I also have a website. It's called unboxedlife.me a mouthful, but just think about unboxing yourself and you can send me a message through there as well. Wonderful. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Likewise, thank you for having me. I'm so happy we got to talk. Thank you leaders and future leaders for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.